Made in Latin America. 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 Welcome to Made in Latin America, a new podcast brought to you by the Santo Domingo Center of Excellence for Latin American Research at the British Museum. In this podcast, you'll be listening to insights and interpretations about iconic collections at the British Museum, as well as examples from the more than 60,000 items, of which many have never been on display. Join us in this series that will deepen and challenge what you know about Latin America. This season explores the Tolimpeya Codex, one of the few surviving pre-Hispanic pictorial manuscripts made more than 500 years ago in the Mystic region in Mexico. In which language is it written? Why is its blue color so unique? What stories does it tell? The podcast will be hosted by two curators from the Latin America Center, Laura Osorio Sonax and Maria Mercedes Martinez Milanchi. Indigenous researchers, communities, and artists working with this codex will join us throughout the season. Hi, everybody. This is Marcelas and Laura from the Santo Domingo Center of Excellence for Latin American Research at the British Museum, and welcome to the Made in Latin America podcast. In this last episode, we'll talk about contemporary codices made by artists and activists that are using historical images to express political realities in Mexico and the Mexico-U.S. border. Just to remind you how it's going to work, me and Laura are going to have a conversation and then we'll have some comments from different specialists. And throughout the episode, you'll be listening to a creative retelling of the Donindella Codex read by Miguel Villegas Ventura. A year and a day from the death of his shadow, Lord Adio memorializes the Temazcal and what happened in the steam and the darkness. He walks the sacred road. He dresses in funeral robes. He stops at the temple and drinks the milky yeast foam of the pulque, the drink of the gods. It's alcohol first to commemorate and to remember. And if we hold our cameras tight, we might see a king in mourning. By slide our focus wider, and another figure might come into frame. A man with a smiling mouth and the sitting knees and the blood-stained hands of the Temazcal healer with the blade in the cut branches. He might be sitting there too, drinking the pulque, smiling in the ceremonial remembrance for the man that he killed. Welcome to today's podcast, where we will be focusing on three contemporary codices made in Mexico and the United States in the past few years. Um, so first, we're going to discuss the Rodriguez-Mondragón Codex, which was created by Sandy Rodriguez, a Mexican-American artist raised on the California-Mexico border. So Laura, can you tell us a little about this codex? Yeah, it's actually part, the codex is part of a series of paintings made by Sandy Rodriguez, and she uses natural pigments to create what look like almost more like Western cartographic styles, Western maps, uh, but with figures drawn onto the map that employ colonial era codex or convent wall painting style figures. So este Codice Rodriguez Mondragón is a codex that shows basically a lot of different political contexts and social contexts from the region Uh, but all on the same map. Uh, so I think what's quite interesting there is that you have things that are supposed to have happened, let's say, the repatriation of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans off the 
Texas coastline from 1929 to 1936. So, so that's shown by a, by a freighter off the edge of the Texas coastline. But we also have the detention centres uh, that were built in the region in 2018 that refer to the separation of immigrant families in the US policy. So it, so it, so it draws together uh, different, different periods of history on one, one space, fracturing this idea of the relationship between territory and timelines. Yeah, and it's really powerful, the images she used of contemporary U.S. today, right? Because you have ICE agents, you have ICE agents with the helmets and body armor, like capturing residents and activists. And you also then see the contrast with like Spanish vessels and, and, and weapons. And then you also conceive in like drones and marine vessels, just like the war machine from the, the, the USA, right? Absolutely. And, and I think that that, that idea of a, of a visual nowness is reinforced by the fact that she uses these natural pigments that she gets from the local landscape. So it sort of draws you into this idea of something historical um, that reminds us of codices because, of course, of course, codices were painted with natural pigments and, you know, employed natural materials, amate paper or deer skin, etc. Um, but it also tells us of the contemporary environment because these are pigments that have been sourced uh, recently. Yeah, and she's really drawing from um, the Florentine Codex, right, which is actually named the General History of, of the Things of New Spain by Bernardino de Sahagún in the 16th century and, and compiled by Nahua scribes, right? That's right, yeah. What the Tlaquilos used to do, the Tlaquilos are the uh, Mesoamerican writers. That was their, you know, scribes, if you want. Um, what they do is they do conflate different actions and different places and different times, and that's what the Florentine Codex uh, does and what a lot of different codices actually actually, from the, uh, from, from the colonial period, do to sort of tell stories. And a lot of those codices, what they do is they reclaim territory. So they're a way of communicating different lineages, for example, or um, different spatial arrangements according to indigenous logics and indigenous structures for the Spanish colonial administration in order to effectively uh, lobby for continued indigenous power relations. And so, in a sense, that's what the Codice Rodriguez Mondragon does because it's named after her family, who are Mexicans living in the United States, but telling the story, as you say, of um, all of the injustices that Mexican-Americans experience on that territory uh, to show that it's the borders themselves that have crossed over these people. It's not people who have crossed over the borders. So it's a resistance against the narrative of the noxious Mexican immigration into, into the United States. Definitely. And it's also uh, a nudge to her own cultural heritage as a Mexican-American, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And it makes it personal because, of course, it's so easy to see a lot of these kinds of artworks as being political activism, which they, of course, are. But by calling the Codex by her own family name, she's tying those political experiences to her own family and to her own positionality. Definitely. And, and it's also the story of, of many thousands of people that can really relate to, to not only her, her personal story, but also the outrage against U.S. contemporary politics in the past few years. Absolutely. I think it's a, it was a series of artworks that can say as much to Mexicans and Latin Americans on U.S. soil as it does to people in, in Mexico. And that, that makes it really special because artworks that are based on codices that you usually find in museums to speak to such a wide array, wide array of people is really a way to, to get 
people interested in these codices in the first place, right? You're totally right. And you're totally right. And, and I think that that's the other thing about anthropology museums. So art museums tend to be, I think, to some extent, slightly more inclusive in the way that they represent cultural and transnationality, etc., cultural hybridity. But anthropology museums often divide, for example, North, like culturally speaking, uh, the settler, settler colonialism in the United States and Canada from Mexico and further south in Latin America. And so she effectively challenges those territorial cultural divisions. And so another codex that you've worked with uh, more closely because it was in one of the exhibits you curated at the Museum of Anthropology at UBC in Canada is the Ayotzinapa Codex. Um, so why don't you tell us a bit about that? Sure, yeah. So the, yeah, this is a codex that, as you say, is uh, is closer to my experience. It was a codex that I actually acquired for, for MOA UBC yeah, in 2018. It was made in 2014 following the uh, Ayotzinapa disappearances. So for for anyone listening who, who doesn't know uh, what happened... Uh, in there were 43 students from the Escuela Isidro Burgos, which is in the state of Guerrero in Mexico, in southern Mexico, and they went missing. They were forced, dis- they are forced disappearance and they're, they're, they're pre- presumed dead. Obviously, that was something which was very highly publicized in Mexico. There were lots of national and international investigations into into those disappearances. The families of the 43 students who are predominantly indigenous, they were student teachers. They are still lobbying in Reforma, which is one of the main streets in Mexico City, effectively for justice and for public acknowledgement or governmental acknowledgement of that human rights uh, violation. Obviously, this is not the only circumstance in in Mexico in recent years of large-scale disappearances um, of indigenous people, predominantly women. In this case, they're predominantly men, which is linked to governmental corruption and linked to drug trafficking, you know, a lot of the other sort of legacies of, uh, of colonialism and neoliberalism now. But it's a story that garnered a lot of public interest. It definitely does speak to um, some of the ongoing problematic uh, race relations in Mexico regarding the way that indigenous peoples are treated and the variable degrees to which they receive, you know, legal justice. When that atrocity happened, these two guys, uh, Juan Manuel Sandoval Palacios and Diego Sandoval Avila, uh, father and son actually, uh, decided to create the Ayotzinapa Codex. It's it's, uh, about eight metres long. And it's about half a metre wide, so it's it's enormous. And it was made as actually a prop for protest. So what um, the families of the victims of the Ayotzinapa disappearances would do is they would all stand together and walk down the main street in Mexico City holding the codex to sort of lobby for uh, recognition from the government and to try to sort of garner some publicity internationally as well. So the story that the Codex tells, it's, it's both images and writing. The images are taken from lots of different uh, Mesoamerican codices, and some of them are kind of reinvented with sort of new contemporary elements. So there are bits of Codice Mendoza, there are bits of the Aperramiento Codex, but then there's also pictures of riot police in Codex-style depiction, and there's a picture of Enrique Peña Nieto, who was the president of Mexico at the time, sort of sitting on a throne as though he were a Spanish vice king, um, virrey. The idea is that they're saying that contemporary Mexican government is a descendant of the colonial administration. Is it right that this codex was made in conjunction with 
with children from the communities or...? No, actually. So that's sort of an interesting thing to, in terms of all of these new codices. There are codices that, that are and political documents made by indigenous artists and communities. This particular codex, Juan Manuel Sandoval Palacios, is actually an INA, so an, an anthropology and heritage worker, um, and his son is an, is an illustrator. Their project was one of solidarity with indigenous communities rather than, yeah, artistic agency on the part of that, of, of indigenous peoples. The ancestors would not be pleased with this ritual. Lord Twelve Muthmin in his corpse bundle will not be pleased, and the four innocents killed will be looking on with stony faces. Lady Six Monkey, Lord Eleven Wind, and his two adult sons. Lord Eleven Wind's only daughter lives, and she too looks on with stony face. This daughter, Lady Thirteen Serpent, is set to marry and marry the bloodstained king who ordered her family dead. Lord Adir would wed Lady Thirteen Serpent on her name day no less to placate the other local rulers to join the two houses and unite a slash unstable realm. An old man and young woman with hatred in her heart imagine for a moment the minute stillness on the wedding night after the torches go out. What fear, disgust, and horror in the dark and frozen silence. And from then on, Lord Adir has a wife, but no children follow that year or the next. There are, however, other people's children who have Lord Adir on their mind. Lady Six Monkey has now murdered one's true love before her death, had two sons. Both live, both grew, and while one was serving spirits in the priesthood, the other trained for a battle and nurtured a flame of vengeance that could bide his time till he was older and stronger. And the drum beats for Lord Eight Year, and its sound gets slowly louder, and its rhythm gradually quickens. It whirls around Lord Eight Year, keeping time between his heartbeats and it will only stop when they do. And so what do you think the intersections here are between, like, protest signs and paraphernalia and something you'd find in a museum? So I think that's a really interesting question. On the one hand, I think that the Ayotzinapa Codex is a material, piece of material culture that is a testimony to an important period in Mexican history. Secondly, I think that uh, museums have been recently critiqued, and I think quite rightly, for their inability to express politicised positions about the very political material that they uh, care for or own. Uh, and so what ends up happening is that effectively museums try to create cultural narratives that don't engage with some of the legacies of the of the colonial structures that that they themselves as institutions are built on. One of the ways I think that museums can sort of engage interestingly in those debates uh, and and fight for their relevance is by platforming non-dominant and marginalized or minoritized groups. Um, it's these kinds of protest pieces that kind of, I think, bring to the fore the very real, very uh, violent politics 
that that underlies some of the anger about museum collections. Where Sandy Rodriguez's piece, what it does is it says, okay, there is no real cultural border between the southwest of the United States and Mexico, and territories and cultures are effectively very fluid for a number of different contemporary and historical reasons. This codex actually what it does is it fractures our idea of the way that temporalities or time structures are communicated. So, for example, there is often a distinction made between Western linear narr- like temporal narratives, uh, Eurocentric narratives uh, that are about progress that go, you know, start with the birth of Christ or you know, before the birth of Christ, whatever, and they and they accumulate with every different year, and and you see a timeline, and so you appreciate uh, cultures over time in this particular way that we've been taught at school, etc. Versus something like a Mesoamerican cyclical temporal con- conception, in which there are sort of certain ideas of cyclicality and renewal that don't necessarily imply the same things about the way that society develops and don't imply an idea of historical accumulation or totalization in the way that we understand it. Those things are often divided as as being two very different cultural ways of understanding time. But what the Ayotzinapa Codex does is it tells a contemporary story using historical styles and it picks and chooses different logics, temporal logics, and cultural logics for its own purposes, for this overarching political purpose. So, for example, there's one part of the of the Codex where the flaying of one of the Ayotzinapa victims, so one of the victims of the Ayotzinapa disappearances, has been proven to have had their skin removed. And the, the writers of the Ayotzinapa Codex, what they do is they associate it with the pre-Hispanic Mexica figure, Xipetotec, who is a god who wears the flayed skin. Uh, on top of his on top of his own where a lot of archaeologists who are sympathetic to the idea that indigenous understandings of the Shibetotec figure were not barbaric and they were not about flaying sacrificial victims, etc. You know, that would take that side of it. The Codex says that this is a barbaric thing, that the Shibetotec is, is, is barbaric, but that the contemporary Mexican government is using barbaric sort of you know, styles of violence, you know, against their populace. And yet at the same time, what the Codex is doing is it's saying that the Ayotzinapa victims are the the Mexica, they are the Aztecs, whereas the the colonial administration or the riot police and the and the contemporary government of Mexico are the Spaniards. And so there is a kind of cultural conflation there that kind of doesn't make in a sense it's not coherent. At the very end of the Codex, which I think is probably a better example, there are all these people dressed in Mexica clothing and they're carrying protest banners and it says, the 43, we want them alive, you know, etc. And then in the text it says, the disappearance of the warriors has incited contemporary Mexico to resist the atrocities of neo-New Spain from neo-colonial domination. And so it looks to the to the future. It says that the Codex is written in a future in which Mexico has resisted those neocolonial forces. So it plays with, with, with cultural ideologies, it plays with different temporal periods, and it effectively completely interrupts um, any of the coherence that we would expect in order to make the point that the artists want to make. Definitely. And I think, I think both in the Yotzinapa Codex and in the Rodriguez Mondragon Codex, 
even even if an obvious point, the comparison between the colonial Spanish and the and the current governments, both both in Mexico and in the U.S., that involve the disappearance of people and the yeah the abuse the abuse of, of marginalized communities is is really powerful. Yeah, absolutely, and I think in a way it speaks to the. It speaks to what the codices used to be to some extent, which were resistance documents uh, made at a time of, of, of profound, I think, cultural clash and, uh, and crisis. Uh, but at the same time, they reclaim those documents for, for new ideas uh, um, and for, you know, and, and, they, and they look beyond, I think, their historical context to create new materialities and new ideas. Time passes, the world turns, the evil and the righteous share the same sky, and the sun knows all their names and all the deeds that they have done. The sun looks down on unhappy lady 13 serpents and her thankless marriage match. More wives will come for her husband, and children too in time, but she knows how to bide and wait. She can hear the drum beat. The sun looks down on vengeful Lord for wind, a young man now, 21, with a strong arm and a brave spirit, ready for the strike. The sun looks down on all the graves and fire-burnt villages. The clothes unworn, the tools unused, the harvest not brought in, lives unlived, and trails of tiny drops of red all leading to one door. The sun looks down on Lord Adir, his 52nd birthday approaching, and this sentimental older man sees a strength and determination in the youngster orphan boy, born of his once true love. Lord Fallwind, born of murdered Lady Six Monkey. The elder king wants to nourish him, to pass on skills and knowledge to retrial his own youth again through the eyes and hands of this other. He sees something of himself in the fatherless fighting boy, and he cannot hear the drum beat. Not yet. And so the third contemporary codex um, that we're going to be talking about is by Mariana Castillo de Val. Um, it was produced in 2011, and it's called El Donde Estoy Va Desapareciendo, which means the where I am is vanishing. And so I just I actually just saw this codex in, in person in Mexico City because it's at the university's contemporary art museum, the MUAC. And, and and it's it's very different to these other codices. I think I think its political commentary is a little less obvious and a little less pointed, I guess, towards a, a government, um, because the codex like really just tells the story of itself, right? In in a weird, not we, weird, but yeah, no, so, so weird. You're right. It's it's less act. It's le- it's less of an activist piece, I think. Um, but it is still very political, I think, though, because what it's saying is it's forcing the viewer to accept that within a Mesoamerican um, cosmovision, you know, these kinds of things, these books, they're alive. They're, they're, they're not objects to be stored somewhere in a, in a library or somewhere in the back of a museum. They're, they're living things that need to be interacted with by people and they have to exist within that cultural context, which is in which they are 
spoken to in which they are spoken with you know that involves these sort of careful rituals and sharpened heart etc definitely and so, so, the, so the codex itself is, is a very long screenfold manuscript and it's, it's a story of the Borgia codex right that's kept at the at the Vatican Museum how it was like it's it has its whole history written on on the codex so how the codex was made from killing the deer to making the deer skin to to the book to, from the fictional travel to the Vatican to different and it, it's very fragmented in its pictures and it has a lot of disarticulations and gaps just like the collections history has and and and, and basically the, the codex is speaking it's its own voice right yeah that's right i mean I, I think that's why you're right when you say in a sense it's got a less forceful political statement behind it because i think it's it's a very let's say erudite way to to make the point yeah so when you look as you say when you look at it the images they're cut almost as if it, there's been a printing error isn't it so like you see let's say half a deer and then there's a gap and then you see the other half because we study this stuff and we know about codices a little a little bit anyway um we know that that this is a sort of metaphor for as you say these articulated these disarticulated moments in what we know about the codex history but i, I think perhaps to uh, someone who didn't necessarily have that background, uh, that would not be a sort of really blatant iconographical statement about, you know, the de- decontextualization of Mesoamerican material culture in Europe, right? Yeah, and and I think there there's also a video um, and audio that plays next to the codex that I think tries to to hammer in that point, especially the criticism to to how academia, I guess, has has or Western academia has dealt with with this codex, and it's it's voices both. In not both, but both in Nahuatl, Spanish, Italian, German, and it ends in English of the academic languages that sort of have parsed through this codex and and rationalize the information through history, which is, I think, when you when you see it in person, it's quite jarring because you're you're listening to multiple languages you don't understand and and not quite understanding the content. And when you see the content, it's she's it's reading academic texts about the codex with which if you read an academic text about the codex from in german from about 100 years ago it's quite complex <laughs> it's quite complex and not it's not understandable but yeah so so what do you think her her point is in in criticizing i think criticizing academia and museums so i don't know but i mean and i suppose that's sort of in a sense part of the strength of a lot of these con- sort of quite conceptual uh, creative projects, which is that they're left open ended, and we can we can understand that critique in in the ways that in the, in whichever way we do or want to. Um, but if if to me, I think it's a little bit about yeah intellectual dissonance, right? It's this idea that there are all these different things and contexts happening intellectually and otherwise that are governed yes, by geopolitics and governed by larger forces, but which are, which survive without any proper understanding of different ways of knowing and different ways of existing in community or society. So just for example, the languages, having everything in different languages, it speaks to how much we cannot really or do not really understand conversations that are happening in other parts of the world or that are happening perhaps next to us but in a different language language being also a metaphor for open communication so for example not knowing anything about mesoamerica you wouldn't know that to mesoamerican communities these collections are are living things and so maybe she's trying to 
rather than creating the bridge, because I think the bridge is variable and can be created in different ways. She's pointing to the gaps, pointing to the disarticulations um, and reminding us that of how intolerant we all really are to different intellectual traditions. Definitely. And I also think in if you, if you look at the codex, there's a lot of blank space on the codex. And I think she's also making that point there, right? And also the the lack of understanding of even even museums that have very detailed collection history, the, there's a giant gap of, of when this codex leaves Mesoamerica until somebody finds it, until Alexander von Humboldt found, finds it um, in the belongings of, a, of Cardinal Stefano Borgian and, and goes to the Vatican Library, right? So, like, I think those... I think art also gives space to think about those gaps and like what they may be. And, and with an object that has its own life, um, I think the possibilities are really, are really interesting. And so it is that they go out on a hunt. Lord A. Deer and Lord Four Wind and a group of other men. And the drum beat is getting louder. And blessings earned from offerings sharpen their eyes to the flint tips of their arrows. And the arrows, flinging from bowstrings, catch drops of sunlight in their passage. And louder comes the drumming, and faster comes the drum. A day of energetic chasing. And at the end of it, Lord Adir lies down to wild, haunting, hunting dreams. He sleeps. And in sleep, see his arms stretch, his bow, and his arrow flying through the night, glinting silver in the moon, just as in the waking world, the moon glints and glitters on blades of daggers surrounding now his slumber. He sees his arrow fleeing through and pierce the belly of a coyote, just as the moonlit daggers of the waking world plunge down into his sleeping flesh. The drumming tightens to a crescendo as divers pull out, thrust in, pull out, thrust in. He can hear it now. He can hear it as the coil tension in his body fades towards a stillness. And slower comes the drummer, and fainter comes the drum. As the dawn rises, the last beat to fall is a single drop was scarlet red. Briefly, it collects on the yellow grass, brushed with the glinting golden edge by the smiling, watching sun. It collects into a sphere that reflects all the world around it and then falls with only a whisper to the brown earth below. Uh, thank you very much for joining us on our first season. We've really enjoyed sharing the recent stories and research we've been doing with the Donning Day Codex, which is not on display at the British Museum. If you want to find links to any of the images about of the things that we've been talking about today, you can find those in the episode description. We hope to see you on another season of Made in Latin America. This is Maria Las Marisas Martinez Milanchi and Laura Soria Sanex. Until next season. The epic of Lord A. Deer was read aloud by Miguel Villegas Ventura. This creative reinterpretation, scripted by Jack Monaghan, is based on the Donindeye and other Mishte codices that mention Lord A. Deer's story. 
we are particularly indebted to the book Encounter with the Plum Serpent, Drama and Power in the Heart of Mesoamerica by Martin Jensen and Gavina Aurora Perez Jimenez. And the play, Recreation of the History Told in the Mishtecolices by the community theater, Yo Onyu Sabi, directed by Maria Ofelia Porras Lescas. This podcast season is made possible by the generosity of Alejandro and Charlotte Santo Domingo and Mrs. Julio Mario Santo Domingo with Andres and Lauren Santo Domingo. If you want to know more about the Santo Domingo Center, please visit SDCellar website, sdcellarbritishmuseum.org. This podcast was recorded, engineered, and edited by Prong Productions. For more information on Prong, please visit prongproductions.com. That's P-R-O-N-K productions.com. 